Good morning, everyone. Good morning, church. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. That was, that was wonderful. And I love the reminder, too. Of... Amen. Thanks, guys. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31? This is a special Sunday because today we are wrapping up our first Samuel series, When Mess Meets Mercy. This is the end. This is the end of 1 Samuel. Um, and we have gleaned so much from this book. There's so many beautiful passages in this. Passages in this. And as we bring it to a close, I hope that you will recognize with me just how wonderful and subtly God's providence and God's grace and God's mercy shines from the pages of this, of this book. And similar to last week, our passage this morning, it ends in what we think is a tragedy. But it also points us to the triumph of the coming King of kings, of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. So with that, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading through 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 13. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through it. For these uncircumcised men will not come and run me through. And they will torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. When they put his armor in the temple of the Ashereths and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. When the residents of, Gebesh, of Jebesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at Jebesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterward, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jebesh and fasted for seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
I remember the newspaper headline of when Saddam Hussein was captured. Because it was a memorable headline. A picture of his head popping out of the ground from this hole that he was living in. The sheer defeat on his face as mud covered his face and they were checking for identity, checking him to see if it was really him. If you remember Saddam Hussein, he ruled Iraq for 24 years before being captured. And after the U.S. had invaded Iraq to capture him, Newsweek posted this article describing his humiliation this way. They said, the haggard, defeated, meek and weak, the quote, glorious leader, direct descendant from the, of the prophet, the lion of Babylon, the father of the two lion cubs, cubs, the anointed one, the successor of Nebuchadnezzar, the modern Saladin of Islam, had been brought low, forced to bow down to contemplate his fate while waiting to stand trial. And he would later be tried and hung for crimes against humanity. A leader who once sought power and avoided defeat at all costs, even if that meant burying himself into a hole in the ground, was now humiliated by his own reckoning. Friends, that's the same kind of defeat, the same kind of humiliation that we find in 1 Samuel, in Saul. The first king of Israel, a man anointed to lead God's people, experienced the same defeat as one who was an enemy of God. And despite the years of the warnings, the laws, the counsel, and the direct prophetic words of Samuel, the prophet, pride resided so deep in the heart of this king who sought to be like everyone else to dismiss his difference as God's anointed. That's what we entered into this morning. And as we read chapter 31, ringing in our ears is chapter 12, verse 13. Now here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. That's one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Because it ends in tragedy. Remember that's Samuel telling Israel, this is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. And in that light, as we walk into a battlefield of a mess created by Saul, who is no longer one of God's people, but fighting against the judgment of a dying king. That's what we're walking into. Verses 4 and 6, I want to draw your attention to that here as we look at this dying king. And verse 4 and 6, I think it's perhaps the most telling of Saul's spiritual state in this moment because he's entered a losing battle, right? He's entered a losing battle. Remind you, the last time that we saw him, he was consulting with the witch of Endor, trying to get her advice of what his future is going to be. She calls, kind of, she thinks that she's going to call up a spirit who will direct him, Samuel, but God kind of has this crazy 
interceding moment where he brings up Samuel. The lady gets scared and tells Saul of the judgment that's going to come. And so now we have him fighting against a battle that he knows he's going to lose, but he's fighting against it anyway. Death is near. And one by one, he's seeing his sons die. It's dramatic, and it's meant for us to soberly see this moment of fighting against God's will is always a losing battle. And Saul is on the ground recognizing this reality. And now he's been shot. His sons are dead. The enemy's closing in. He's been shot. But this is his plan. Let me direct you again to verse 4 through 6. Saul says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through it. Or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer couldn't do it because he was so terrified. Then Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. Verse 6, so on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. That is an important verse to pick up on. Not only is it himself that he, out of his sinfulness, he tries to take control of and kill himself, but it's also his family lineage. It's also those soldiers closest to him trying to guard him. And then it's also all of the men of Israel that go and are fighting against the enemy. Sin has devastating consequences. And this is what it is. Dying kings rule crumbling kingdoms. Dying kings rule crumbling kingdoms. We must remember, though, when we're reading this, it's intense. So we've got to remember our context here. Saul was the image that Israel so desperately wanted. In so many ways, he reflects the image the Bible tells us will not last. Okay? The world has an expiration date, but we get so caught up in the security of things. We get so caught up in the polish of things, looking for satisfaction, looking for love, looking for pleasures in falling kingdoms, that we, real, that we forget to realize what we're chasing after. And Saul is Israel's depiction of that pursuit. But thankfully, we have the Bible to give us reminders. We have God's word to remind us of these falling kingdoms, of these dying kings. Have you guys realized how dark nursery rhymes are? You guys realize that? It's kind of scary when you start like understanding their context. And when Pastor Andrew and I, when we were kind of studying this passage together this week, he kept on doing he kept on going Humpty Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty. Like he kept on saying that because he's like, this reminds me of Humpty Dumpty. 
And it got me thinking about like all of the other dark and scary nursery rhymes that are out there in the world. Uh, like Ring Around the Rosie, it's all about the plague, that's super, super dark. You got uh, London Bridge, you've got Mary Mary, Quite Contrary. I just read that one, that's terrible. It's not about a garden at all. It's about people dying. But this is the thing about them, is that everything in these nursery rhymes, the reason why they're dark is because they're either about someone falling, which is not fun, someone dying, a bunch of people dying, or people getting sick, or even babies getting kidnapped. Right? Rockabye baby. I feel like I just told you new information. Rockabye baby is about a baby getting kidnapped. I've been saying that to my kids like all the time. I say that, I say that to them all the time. I don't know if I want to do that anymore. But it's this historic reminder. As I'm reading these, it's this, this historic reminder through the centuries of the recognition that kingdoms fall. Death happens. It is a reality. And our world is passing away. And if our hope is in them, as glossy and shiny as they look, they will crumble. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says it clearly. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one, in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Amen? Replacing God's role in our lives with any other aspect of a created order, good or bad, always ends badly. Say it another way. Replacing the infinite with the finite will only end badly will only end in humiliation, what we see here. And right now, Israel is learning this. Israel's learning this moment. The mess created by looking to some other thing, some other king that looked like all the other nations resulted in a dying king and a crumbling kingdom and a humiliating spectacle. Verses 8 through 10, it tells us that the next day, the Philistines, after the battle, the Philistines come down to strip all of the slain of their armor. And then they find Saul. And it says that they spread the good news to the people in, in the temples of their idols. That phrase, good news, is gospel is good news, is the same word, but it's a false gospel. It's used falsely, and it's meant to chill us. It's meant to make us feel like they're misusing the good news of God, that they have taken something finite, something that doesn't last, and they're putting a stamp of gospel on it. 
It's there to chill us. The Philistines thought that because Israel's king had been defeated, Israel's God had been defeated. They don't know the background. They thought that the God who broke off the Philistine idols, who broke off these Philistine idols' heads in chapter 9 was now defeated. To them it was this good news. But Saul's humiliation was fully realized when they took his body, they stripped off all of his armor, they cut off his head, and they hung his body along with his sons in a grotesque, humiliating spectacle for everyone to see. Saul's greatest fear is now realized. Here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. But light shines in the brightest in the dark. The Bible is an honest book. The Bible is an honest telling of humanity. It's raw. It does not hold back. And in dark moments like this, there shines a small glimmer of hope. Jabesh Gilead. You remember those guys? They're in chapter 11, and they're the tribe of scaredy cats. They are the tribe kind of known for its cowardice. I don't know if you remember this. In chapter 11, Nahash, bad Amalekite leader, he comes in and he says, I'm going to line you all up and pop out your right eyeballs. And then you're going to know that now I am now your king. And what did they do? They were scared. They were scared and they ran to Saul back when he was not even yet anointed the full king. Like he wasn't even had in the ceremony yet. But cowardice was there. They were scared. They were a scared people. They were afraid. But in their weakest moment back then, God filled Saul with his spirit and defeated Nahash. And through Saul, God delivered them and they rejoiced. The covenant was realized in the face of death and torture, right? A covenant promise was the glimmer of hope for people who were terrified of what was going to happen next. And now the same tribe, the same tribe who couldn't defeat themselves, who couldn't defend themselves, are now the silver lining of the story. They're now the tribe that goes out and they are the and they, they're the tribe in verse 11 through 13 where we see promised mercy amidst tragedy. Let's read that, re- read that together. Verse 11 through 13. When the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they, they, burned and bar- they burned the bodies there. Afterwards, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So 
As we're reading this, I want to draw your attention to the tamarisk tree. What's with the tamarisk tree? Why is that important? Is there a message going on? Is this ironic? When we read these passages, we want to look at some of these details. Because the last time we heard from a tamarisk tree, Saul was sitting under it in the shade with his army surrounding him, holding his spear, paranoid of David, and giving a death sentence to all of the priests in Israel who would be executed for what he thought was helping David. Okay? So there's some irony there. Because now Saul is himself buried under it. But there's a deeper meaning going on underneath the surface. No pun intended. In Genesis 21, verse 33, a tamarisk tree is planted. And it's a symbol associated with God's covenant promise. Saul is dead and buried. But the tree planted above him is the reminder of an everlasting God who is there and the mercy that he's always promised will continue. Despite dying kings and crumbling kingdoms, God reigns alone. Amen? Jebesh Gilead, the brave men sent out to remind themselves and the people of Israel. Our God is not defeated and he is not dead. He is alive and he will carry us through this moment, however dark it will be. They themselves didn't even know that they were the silver lining of hope. Isn't that incredible? We don't even recognize the hope that we bring to the world because we always find ourselves and we think of ourselves as too insignificant. But friends, we are God's people. We are God's people here to plant the tamarisk tree in seasons of hopelessness, in places where everyone says, abandon all that you have. We say, our God is not dead. Our God is here. And his promises stand above all of the things that we experience day in and day out. Our God is here. And his covenant promise lasts forever. Our king will come. God has kept his promise. Even when we don't. That's the tamarisk tree. A coming king. And even now, as we pause, we're not going to go into 2 Samuel. But if we did, 2 Samuel verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 1, anticipates God's chosen king coming when it says, After the death of Saul, David returned. The Lord took care of his people. He took care of David. Both David himself as a sojourner, and the Israelites, needing to be rescued, received mercy, and experienced the promise fulfilled by the God who is there. Of course, we are on this side of the history now. And a lot has been fulfilled. So when we look at this passage, David is the king who came from God to deliver his people. 
But David is only a type of king that points to a far greater king. David was a man after God's own heart. You guys remember that? David is a man after God's own heart. But the coming king would be the very heart of God, himself embodied in human flesh. Mark chapter 1, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. In verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He says that with more of an exclamation. Repent and believe of the good news. I'll say it a little more angst. Jesus entered a condemned and crumbling kingdom to offer a compelling kingdom in its place. There's this guy in the New Testament who felt this, who experienced this. Zacchaeus. If you're familiar with the New Testament, Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He's also a tax collector. Tax collector who has frequently inflated the cost of taxes to take the top off for himself. He was despised by his own people. He was a traitor and he lived a lifestyle that was destined to crumble. Talk about shimmering dying kings and dying things and finite stuff. Zacchaeus was the example of one who treasured it all. But something dramatic happened to him. As some of us know, that dramatic thing was he caught sight of Jesus. Something within him stirred when he saw the man from Galilee walking in. And it compelled him to see more. So much, in fact, that he climbed up a tree facing and willing to face some kind of cultural humiliation. But listen what happens in Luke 19. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw began to, be, began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. That is a dramatic, dramatic story. A dramatic turn of events. Zacchaeus is no longer the same man that he once was. It's like in my teenage years when I wore all black. I went to hardcore, like, metal concerts. I straightened my hair, my bangs, just my bangs. And I, like, did some stuff to the back. I straightened them down so you couldn't see my face. And all the music I listened to was like, it's like crazy stuff. Until one day, I discovered musical theater. And my life was changed. 
I still remember the, the day when I saw my friend playing, singing in the rain on their TV. Oh, goodness. I now spoke in song. I realized this beautiful, fun, good thing that was once that I didn't even have any idea what it was. But I, the funny part is I remember walking into my friend's. I was living with my friend at the time, and we were both, like, dressed like that. And, and I remember entering his, or, like, in his room. It was, like, all dark because you have to have darkness and, like, that type of music. Can't have all the lights on. All these posters and, like, all of our music gear was around. And, um, and it's, like, in the, in the music, it's like, and then I remember entering and being like, there's no business like show business. And, and I replaced, like, my skinny jeans with, like, old trousers that I found from Goodwill. I took my hair and I, like, brought it up and tried to make it as wavy as I could. And he was like, what's happened here? Why are you wearing such bright clothing? Why'd you turn the lights on? It's dramatic. Because I caught a glimpse of something compelling, something beautiful. But only then, that was just, that was just musical theater. When I came to know Jesus, that was even more compelling and even more beautiful. But let me take it another step deeper with Zacchaeus. What else happened to Zacchaeus? It wasn't just a dramatic event. It's what happens to everyone who hears the good news. Everyone who hears the gospel. Humiliation from our mess. Humiliation from our mess, from our crumbling kingdoms, from our weaknesses, are overridden by Jesus' mercy. Amen? Jesus takes our humiliation and replaces it with mercy. So we don't even experience the full magnitude of what these sins, of their consequences of these sins. Jesus takes it and he brings it with him to the cross and replaces it with humility, with mercy, with grace, with forgiveness. We are desperately seeking rescue from a world gone awry. And Jesus, God's true king, pursues us to deliver. And in this moment, we have experienced true humility. True humility without humiliation. There's a huge difference between humility and humiliation. Because it's our humiliation that he carries to the cross and offers his own humility in our place. It's a compelling, beautiful, true kingdom. And this is also caught by the women who come to Jesus the day, the day after that he's buried. When they go to Jesus' buried tomb. I think there's something beautiful about that. And they, they remind me of Jabesh Gilead troops, of their bravery. Ones in society 
who would not be seen as the most courageous of people, right? All of the apostles or all of the disciples, they were all hiding because they were afraid. But out of gratitude for this king, this king that they so desperately believed, they packed up their spices and they walked in the middle of the night to meet that king at sunrise, knowing that there was a tomb, a, a, a rock in the middle of the tomb, and they had no idea of how they would go and open it. Friends, remember, they, didn't, they came expecting to see a sealed wall. They went there expecting that they would have to turn back with all of their spices still in it, in the basket. But it is enough to go and sit and believe in the hope of Jesus. Because Jesus will surprise us, just like he surprised them. Mark 16, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. Verse 3, but they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. That's the dramatic silver lining. That's the dramatic silver lining. Jesus gave himself up to be a humiliating spectacle so that we could experience a humbling spectacle in his death and resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and took our humiliation, took our crumbling kingdoms, and the sting of death itself. And in Saul's, in Saul's pride, looking back at Saul, he avoided humiliation at all costs. And in the end, his death didn't serve anyone. In the end, his death didn't serve anyone. But in humility, King Jesus, our King Jesus, chose to die a humiliating death to serve everyone. That is compelling. And that is beautiful. And that is true. Because those in Christ, those in Christ can now declare with Paul in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Listen to this, church. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It is true. Amen? Yes. Amen, church. Our mess, 
meets God's mercy at the cross. Our mess meets God's mercy at the cross. Only in Jesus, only in Jesus' grace can we capture what is true and what is beautiful and leave our dying king, leave our crumbling kingdoms behind to follow the one who came to save and to secure our eternity. So the question is, what polished kingdom are you looking at? What polished kingdom are you so concerned with? What is it that's giving you anxiety? What is it that's stressing you out that you're putting too much of your self-identity in? Remember, in the midst of all dark situations, the silver lining of light is the hope that we have in the gospel. The beauty of Christ shines brightest in the darkness. So we can set out as brave children of God who have been given eternity, who have been given salvation. We can pack our spices in our baskets. We can go out and set in the middle of the night, not really knowing what the next future is going to be, but knowing and having full confidence that our God is there. He is there. He is leading us. And he will surprise us. Why? Because he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the one who brought mercy to our mess. And he is the one who is going to continue to do so. And when we see him face to face, we will get to celebrate this joy throughout all eternity. Amen, church? Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. God, expose our, our dying kings that we look to. Expose the crumbling kingdoms so that we would lay them aside and rest in the assurance of the king who came, the king who loved us, and the king who continues to lead us on through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for Jesus, our true king, who will continue to turn our mess into glorious, wonderful, amazing mercy. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.